have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 14. 1 Samuel 14, you'll find this on page 237 of the Black Pew Bible. We're in verses 47 to 52, the end of the chapter. This morning we are concluding a series uh, on the first king of Israel, King Saul, a portion of the book we've been studying, with a passage that reflects on Saul, particularly his success, his family, and his kingship. Now, the next chapter, chapter 15, transitions the focus in the book of Samuel to King David, and King Saul becomes kind of a foil for King David, but it really begins to become David's story. And so, I hope at a later date to come back to the David story, but what I anticipate doing is actually pausing here for who knows how long, and uh, for the rest of the summer, picking up a short series on the Psalms before, with the beginning of the school year in the fall, we pick up a new series. And so this morning then, as we conclude and reflect upon the life of Saul, because that's what the passage invites, it actually reads kind of like an obituary in some ways, a reflection on the conquests and the kin and the kingship of Saul. So we want to ask, what, what do we learn about that from uh, from Saul's story, what do we learn about God and, uh, and how he sums up the life of Saul? And so let me invite you to pay attention to the word of God. First Samuel chapter 14, beginning at verse 47. This is the word of God. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Against Moab, against the Ammonites against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him. To himself. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father in heaven, grant that your word would revive our souls, enlighten our eyes, make wise the simple, give joy to the heart, and humble the proud. Because you oppose the proud, but are gracious to the humble. So speak to us not just of Saul. Speak to us of yourself and of ourselves. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. I wonder if you've heard the new trend, revenge obituaries. This is something new that polite society in the past didn't engage in, where furious family members settle scores with the departed. I simply don't commend them to you. 
but uh, one uh, that kind of hit the national, maybe even the international scene, was about a man from Galveston, Texas, named Leslie. It reads in part, written by his children, adult children, it reads in part, Leslie lived 29 years longer than expected and much longer than he deserved. He leaves behind two relieved children, a son and a daughter, along with six grandchildren and countless other victims. At a young age, Leslie quickly became a model example of uh, doing drugs and womanizing and being generally offensive. He lacked ambition and motivation to do anything more than be reckless, wasteful, squander the family savings, and fantasize about quick, rich, or get-rich-quick schemes. He served no other obvious purpose. He did not contribute to society or serve his community, and he possessed no redeeming qualities except a quick-witted sarcasm, which was amusing during his sober days. With his passing, he will be missed only for what he never did, being a loving husband, father, and good friend. His passing proves that evil does in fact die, and hopefully marks a time of healing and safety for all. You can imagine there are mixed reactions uh, to those words being published as an obituary of anybody. His daughter explained that the family made the decision to publish the obituary not only to bring closure to the family, but to bring attention to domestic violence issues. She says, I apologize to anyone that my father, uh, to anyone that my father hurt, and I felt it would have been offensive to portray him as anything other than who he was. I'm happy for those that simply do not understand. This means you had good parents. Please treasure what you have. And for those being cruel, she means people writing to her cruel things in response to her. She says, please remember that you now resemble my father. And I would be more than happy to write your obituary as well. Well, there's a lot of pain in life. There's a lot of pain in death. Let me ask you, what do you want to be remembered for? How do you hope your children will write about you? This is a kind of uh, summation of Saul's life in some ways. I mean, if you know the story of Saul, there's a lot more to be said about the horrible things that he did. But what does this text say about Saul? It is surprisingly positive. Surprisingly, as a summation pro-Saul. Chapter 14, you may recall, and if you weren't here, I apologize, put him in such a negative light. Uh, Foolish, fickle, not knowing what to do, uh, using God, manipulating God through fasts and the work of disregarded priests and and all kinds of things. And and actually, the story is only going to intensify the negativity about Saul as you pick up the story of David. But what do you get here? But we might say a positive assessment of Saul. Who do you believe then when you read the Bible? Well, if you want the truth, you believe both parts. These verses are, we might say, the judgment of history. The way people assess uh, 
a man's achievements, his contributions, his relative successes in life or lack of it. That's what you have here. So what do we see and what do we learn? Let me highlight three things as the passage falls apart very neatly in verses 47 and 48. We see his success. And then in verses 49 to 51, we see his family. And at verse 52, we see something about his kingship. So we see his success, first of all, and there we're going to learn the trustworthiness of God's promises. And then we see his family, and we're going to consider the mystery of God's providence. And then we're going to see the kingship of Saul and the protection it provided for God's people. So let's start that at verse 47 with Saul's success and the trustworthiness of God's promises behind that success. What are we saying? Well, notice, first of all, Saul's success. Verse 47, when he had taken the kingship of Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side. Uh, Moab, Ammonites, Edom, Zoab, Zoba, uh, Philistines, uh, wherever he turned, he routed them. It says, Israel, you understand, was surrounded by enemies in the day of Israel, in the day of uh, Saul. Moab was to the east. The Ammonites were to the east and north of them. Edom was to the east and south of them. Zobah was to the northeast uh, above Damascus. And the Philistines were to the west all along the Mediterranean coastline, for they were a seafaring people who conquered the, uh, the lands close to the Mediterranean all along the coast. And the Amalekites were south of the Philistines, south and west, towards Egypt. Israel was surrounded by enemies. And it says Saul routed them all. Whose success is it celebrating? From one perspective, Saul's, right? He did, it says, valiantly. That means uh, a person who's valiant is either courageous or determined. And there's a bleeding over of those things. He delivered, it says, Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. These are those those armies that invaded and stole all their their cattle and their their sheep and stole their their farmland and produce and and tried to leave them destitute. He, He delivered Israel as he led the army. He was successful in that, the text is saying. But this is also about God's own success. Why? Because God did it through Saul, just as he said that he would. Listen, when Saul came on the scene, if you remember in chapter 9, because Israel had demanded that they get a human king, having thrown off the kingship of God himself in favor of being like all the nations around them, Saul was brought forth and the Lord revealed to Samuel the prophet that Saul was coming to be the king and said this in chapter 9, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. That's Saul. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Here's his mission. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Israel was wrong to throw off God their king for the sake of a human king. But their cry for the oppression of the Philistines was real and their father in heaven heard it and he gave them Saul 
with the promise that Saul would do what was needed to be done. And Saul did it. And so God, you understand, fulfilled the promise he made to his people. Because his word never fails. What he says he will do, he always does. And so the success of Saul is God's own success. The success of God's word. And so therefore, what can we learn from this? You and I can trust him. He is trustworthy. Does he promise to deliver his people from their enemies? Then his people will be delivered. Do we need to be free from that enemy? Death. Well, the true king, not King Saul, but the true king came to die to give us life. Do we need to be delivered from the hand of the accuser, Satan, the devil? First John says Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to conquer him on our behalf. Do you and I need to be delivered from the bondage of our sin? The enslavement to evil passions and desires and actions. Yes. And we need to be delivered from the judgment that those things deserve. And what does Jesus do? But our true king suffers our judgment to free us, deliver us, rescue us. You can bank on the promise of God. What he says he will do, he will do. So when Paul then says at the end of Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul can say with great confidence, no, none of those things. For we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is a promise you can bank on. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And you can bank on that. Because God can take a terrible mess up with a heart that's against the Lord himself and say, I promise he will save you from the Philistines. And he does. That's the first thing I want you to see, the trustworthiness of our God. Now, the second thing I want you to see is Saul's family. And what do we learn? Well, at least let's ponder anyway. The mystery of God's providence, even in our own experience. We read here, verses 49 to 51, a long list of Saul's relatives, his sons, his daughters, his wife, his cousin. And and before we think about each of them individually, just recognize that this passage is very much humanizing Saul, right? He's not simply some king we should dismiss for his failings. He is a person to be remembered for his family. We are not to say, he doesn't matter, good riddance, forget him, throw him on the ash heap of history. No, 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 don't forget him. He does matter and linger over his family for a bit. And in that, he's like us. He's married and has kids. He kept his family close. I mean, the commander of his army is his cousin. It, it just reflected, it would not have been easy 
to administer a kingdom and to be a family man. And we might say, in light of who this man was, how much harder it would have been to be related to him and on constant public display as the families of public people so often are. And I'll just say, as a different kind of public person, thank you, Redeemer, that my wife and my children just to get to be themselves. And then let me ask you not to impute to them the failures of their husband and father. But consider these individuals in the family of Saul and the mystery of God's providence with his family. I want to walk you through God's providence in their lives just a bit. Catch some of the, the flavor of what went on. Verse 49, Saul, it says, has three sons. Jonathan, we'll come back to him at the end. Uh, and then Ishvi, Ishvi here, also called elsewhere in your Bible, Eshbael or Ishbosheth. Variations on the same name, Ishvi, probably a kind of nickname, an abbreviated version of Ishbosheth, Ishb, Ishvi. Um, later, when David is king of Judah, uh, and Judah is under the house of David, but Saul still has the kingdom of Israel, and they're at war with one another. Ishbosheth, or Ishvi here, succeeds Saul to the throne after 40 years of Saul's reign, and he only reigns but two years. Uh, why? Because two men, uh, on uh, thinking they're serving David, uh, enter into, sneak into Ishvi's home while he's napping at the noonday, run him through the stomach, and bring his head to David. David, for his part, called them wicked men who killed a righteous man on his bed, and he had them executed for it, as it was the prerogative of a a king to execute justice. The third son here is Malkishua, of whom we know very little, but that he dies in battle against the Philistines. Then there's actually not listed here another son, as you read through the story of Saul, uh, Benadab, not mentioned here, perhaps not mentioned, purely speculative, perhaps because he was not yet born at the time that this reflection was written. Saul had a reign of 40 years. He certainly could have had a, a long span of having children. There are some of us who know something about that. Saul had two daughters, then it says, two daughters. The firstborn is Merab. We know little of her. But we know this, uh, that Saul promised her to David to be his wife when David did a heroic deed against the Philistines. Some of you know what that was. But then, instead of giving Merib to David, she's given to another man. And there's no great explanation given for why that is. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, we learn that Merib had five children with that husband. Five sons, that is, who were hung all on the same day by the Gibeonites. Why? Well, because Saul, in his reign, had broken covenant with the Gibeonites with whom they had entered into covenant, a covenant of safety, a covenant of protection. And Saul had actually sought out, hunted down, and killed Gibeonites 
against that covenant when he ought to have spared them. And so later the Gibeonites come to David demanding the offspring of Saul to put them to death. And David, you may remember, spared Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan, on account of Jonathan's own love for David and his covenant faithfulness. So he spared him, but he did give these five sons and two others to the Gibeonites to be done with as the Gibeonites pleased. And so that's Merib. And then there's a younger daughter uh, here, Michael, it says. The younger sister who loved David, the scripture says, loved David and was given to David in marriage. But then you may recall, she's the one who came to despise David when he had that public dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. It's a terrible thing when a wife despises her husband. And uh, the scripture says that she remained childless to the end of her days. Now, it doesn't say why. Whether that was because she despised her husband, so she simply refused him. Or whether it was because David didn't like being despised and he refused to be intimate with her. Or whether this is some sovereign act of God simply closing the womb, we don't know exactly. Now the scripture then turns to uh, Saul's wife, verse 50. Ahinoam, daughter of Amahaz, of whom we know little. And then Abner. This is the first cousin and commander of the army. We know of Abner that he was a general during the long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And the scripture says as David grew stronger and stronger, the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And Abner, as the commander of the house of Saul... It says, uh, made himself strong in the house of Saul until under Ishbosheth, uh, his support for the house of Saul came into question. His allegiance was challenged and he embraced the covenant promises of God given to David that David should, in fact, be the next rightful king of Israel, all of Israel. And he brought the army and the people. He planned to bring them all over to David's side when... Joab, David's army commander, uh, took during a time of peace under a white flag, took Abner aside to talk and then murdered him, killed him. It was a fit of rage. It was a a revenge killing. Uh, uh, Abner had actually slain the brother of Joab in a time of war. But David faults him. David played no part in that treachery. David lamented the loss of Abner and faulted him for committing murder in a time of peace. Well, that's Abner. I'm tempted to quote Paul Harvey here, and now you know the rest of the story. But, uh, but what about Jonathan? Let's come, back, we, let's come back to him. Jonathan here is listed first. We've already learned a number of things about him, but think about God's providence in his life. What a contrast we've seen between Jonathan and Saul. Jonathan, it has seemed all along, would be a great king. Uh, He's daring, he's courageous, he takes the initiative, he acts on God's promises. He believes that God is a big God and he just might be willing to save because he can save by many or by few. Let's trust him, let's go for it. 
Saul, by contrast, seems uh, fickle and capricious. He seems to you know, lick his fingers, stick it in the wind, find out which way the wind's blowing, and then kind of jump on. Uh, he jumps on the bandwagon of Jonathan a number of times, but he doesn't really seem to be the kind of king you'd want. And we know that he disobeyed the Lord and the kingdom is taken from him. Leon Morris, in one of his books, uh, talks about Howard Hughes, who was one of the wealthiest men in the history of the world and died a recluse. Um, he demanded the same meal day after day. At one time, he required two scoops of banana nut ice cream at every meal. It doesn't say whether that was breakfast included, but... Well, his staff became upset when they learned that the manufacturer of that banana nut ice cream he so loved was discontinuing that flavor. So they contacted the manufacturer and requested a special order, and, the, and the, the company agreed to make a special order, but their smallest special order batch was 1,325 liters of ice cream. So Howard Hughes' staff bought that special order, and at the next meal, Howard Hughes said, that's fine ice cream, but from now on, I want French vanilla. Oh, the futility of it, right? You, you, you think you've got all, everything lined up, and it all is to no purpose. For nothing. And it seems like, as you read the story of Jonathan following Saul, that, that he's lined up to follow Saul into the kingship, and he's going to be a great king. But then the dynasty is stripped from Saul and he will not have his children follow him. Why will Jonathan not be king? Why does he have to play a kind of uh, John the Baptist figure to David, King David? Why are his opportunities for career advancement wrecked by the folly of Saul? Why are his gifts seemingly wasted? Why doesn't he get his chance? Why does God work that way? The narrative seems to invite that kind of question as you read through. But the problem may be that we read it as 21st century people who embrace the American dream, who believe that self-fulfillment is a right, that if we just work hard, sweat hard, and be diligent, then we can have whatever we want, we can be whatever we want, we can do whatever we want. We ought to be able to be the king if we've got the gifts. But that kind of thing can be a kind of idolatry. And we all need to watch ourselves with that. We think our circumstances ought to come out right because we've done the right thing. According to our definition of right, to be sure. And we might think Jonathan is a tragic figure. He's a good man. And yet so much of his life was determined by Saul and his folly. But you have to ask the question, would Jonathan have thought of it that way about himself? Would he have said, my life is a tragic life? Jonathan knows that the kingdom of God doesn't belong to him. And it doesn't belong to Saul. That it's the Lord's kingdom. And he knows that he has come not to seize the kingdom, 
or to rule the kingdom, but to serve the kingdom. And he can do that right where he is as a warrior. I think if you'd asked Jonathan, what do you do, Jonathan? He would have said, I fight Philistines. I'm a warrior. That's what I do. Is that tragic? Martin Alasky in his book, Fighting for Liberty and Virtue, and I admit I've never read this. Ralph Davis tells the story that Marvin Alasky tells of John Dickerson, who, uh, this is before Revolutionary War days, he had gone to London in his youth in the 19, or 1750s. He got legal training in London. Uh, and in London, he said there were vicious pleasures offered there. It was a cesspool, and you might not escape. But eventually he repudiated those and he came back to live in Pennsylvania and he took up life on the farm and he wrote a book called Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania. And I'll ask you quotes him. I'm a farmer. I received a liberal education and have been engaged in the busy scenes of life. But I'm now convinced that a man may be as happy without bustle as with it. My farm is small. I wish for no more. With a contented, grateful mind, undisturbed by worldly hopes and fears concerning myself, I am completing the number of days allotted to me by divine goodness. But surely we say, don't waste your training. Don't waste your opportunities. But is it tragic to say, My farm is small and I wish for no more. And with a contented, grateful mind, undisturbed by worldly hopes and fears concerning myself, I'm completing the number of days allotted to me by divine goodness. That's not a tragic life. And Jonathan's is not a tragic life. He simply served God in the time and circumstances he was given in which God had placed him. And so I ask, what about you? What's the mystery of God's providence in your experience? What's God doing with you? What's God doing with your family? What kingdom mercies are you seeking for your children and cousins? What kingdom service are you rendering to the king? And are you content to serve the Lord where you are, within your family, in your work, in your community, alongside brothers and sisters and fellow believers, using the gifts that God has given you? Or would you count that a tragedy? And if so, why? The Lord knows why you are, who you are, and where you are. And so with the Apostle Paul, let's say, 1 Corinthians 7, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. So there's something there of the success of Saul, something there about the family of Saul, something there about the trustworthiness of God's promises and the mystery of God's providence. And there's one final thing. At verse 52, it comes back around to uh, the kingship of Saul. And here we learn again, what does a king do? He protects God's people. That's what he's for. Notice the Philistines were a relentless enemy, it reiterates, plundering and oppressing. 
Verse 52, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. Saul would deliver them and more Philistines would pop up because, again, they were a seafaring people from an island nation. They just kept sending more reinforcements. And so all the days of Saul, he was defending and protecting God's people from the plundering Philistines. That is the work of a king. That's what he was supposed to do. And in that work, it says he looked for strong men and or valiant men, both perhaps muscular, tall Competent. Saul was a tall man too. And courageous and persistent men. And it says he attached them to himself. Some of your translations say he took them to himself. And that is not incidental language. The Israelites have been warned in chapter 8. When they first asked for a king like all the other nations. They were warned the king will take your sons. Saul took the strongest and most courageous of their sons. He didn't ask for volunteers here because kings take and take and take. And so Saul built a standing army. And as Joyce Baldwin in her commentary, wonderful, by the way, says, this was the one development he made in the organization of the kingdom. This was his lasting contribution to Israel. And in this very public work, he was a success. He routed God's enemies. He delivered God's people. But what he didn't do is he didn't walk with God. And that is a temptation for us all to be publicly on God's side but personally rebellious to use our gifts for the kingdom while refusing the king himself. Perhaps you heard the story, I think I shared in a different context, some of the story of Reverend Dr. Ian D. Campbell, who committed suicide in January of 2017, about a year and a half ago. I was catching up on some of his biography. He was an incredibly gifted man. He graduated from the University of Glasgow with first-class honors in arts. Then he went on to do a Bachelor of Divinity degree at the University uh, of London, for which he received first-class honors as a theology student. He pastored historic churches on the, um, on the Isle of Lewis, off Scotland, which is famous for its historic commitment to Presbyterianism, and he was a Presbyterian. He served as a moderator of the General Assembly, the national organization and leadership of the Free Church of Scotland, elected by uh, his fellow elders. He wrote something like 17 books on Christianity and the Bible and contributed to a Table Talk magazine put out by Ligonier Ministries. At the time of his suicide, he was, in addition to his pastorate, vice chairman of the board of Edinburgh Theological Seminary, editor of the monthly magazine of the Free Church of Scotland, and an associate editor of a theological journal, and he was also adjunct professor of church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. And for multiple decades, 
he secretly had affairs with women, in the, with multiple women, in the multiple churches he pastored. And it all caught up to him. And he overdosed on drugs, was rescued, and in hospital, followed up with a suicide by hanging. He was a public success and a personal train wreck. And that is a temptation for any one of us, much like Saul, who on the whole was courageous and determined and militarily successful. No need to deny that. The scripture isn't hiding it. We can acknowledge it. But to be a historical success and a covenant failure is never good. You can work feverishly in service to Jesus without walking in fellowship with God through Jesus. And that's what Saul abandoned. He turned away from the Lord and the Lord turned away from him. May we not make the same mistake. And when we do, not if, but when we do, for we all have our lapses. When we do, when we prioritize our work for God over our walk with God, our success in the world instead of the sanctification of the heart, our use of our gifts instead of the reception of God's grace, may the Lord humble us. May the Lord bring us to repentance. For covenant obedience matters more than vocational achievement, says Ralph Davis, and he's right. And for me as a preacher, what does that look like? In part, it means my faithfulness to my family must not suffer for the sake of public service. It means how I relate to the Lord outside of worship matters far more than how I lead others in public worship. What does it mean for you? No Christian lives this life perfectly, but we are to aim at it, and we do. Christians do sincerely and repent of it when we are exposed in our failures. And so our hope then even is ultimately not in our covenant obedience. As important as that is, our ultimate hope is in the achievement, in the obedience, in the achievement through obedience of a much greater king than King Saul. And praise the Lord, there is that greater king. For when Jesus came, he presented himself to the Lord, John 17, verse 4, and said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. What work? Perfect covenant obedience to the will of God. Here I am, O God, I have come to do your will, Jesus said, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, verse 5. And he did that will, and he did it from the heart. And that's why God accepted Jesus and his ministry on behalf of all those who have failed, who simply trust in him to be right with God. And those of us who know ourselves, we can't say we've done what Jesus did. We're like Saul, not Jesus. Far more like Saul than we are like Jesus. And that's why we need King Jesus to save us. And he succeeds in that. And he's trustworthy when he promises you that. And so you can trust in him for your deliverance. Let's pray. Father, thanks for a great, gracious 
Savior, a strong king who through weakness rescued those who are perishing and grant us hearts to trust in him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.